0: Let's start off by defining this term anisogamy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean like all these terms, it's rather tedious. It just simply means having two different sizes of gametes in the same species. In animals, of course, that would be sperm and egg.
0: This week on Science for the People, we are discussing how the sperm and the egg came to be and how difference of reproductive interests has led to sexual conflict in bed bugs. I'm Anika Hazra. With me is Dr. Jeff Parker, former professor of zoology at the University of Liverpool, an evolutionary biologist credited with developing a theory to explain the evolution of two sexes. And he continues to conduct research in evolutionary biology.
1: So, very simple thing, just two different gamete sizes, really. But it is important because it leads to two sexes males and females. Males produce sperm, females produce eggs.
0: So has anisogamy always existed with two different types of gametes?
1: Well, I think not. Actually, I think it's likely I think to have evolved in eukaryote organisms from isogamy. Another miserable term that simply simply means just one gamete size. In a species, so in isogamous organisms, they just have uh, one gamete size, sometimes with a range around that uh, size, of course. And so they sort of have one sex, if you like.
0: So what kind of organisms or species had isogamy? Most
1: unicellular organisms, I think, have isogamy. Um, A few multicellular organisms have it, but I think it's true to say that all... Uh, metazoa, that's multicellular animals, and all uh, land plants, for instance, have anisogamy. Um, very big difference between the large and the small gamete sizes. I think most unicellular forms have uh, isogamy. Some have anisogamy, but most have isogamy.
0: So, by unicellular, do you mean like bacteria?
1: No, oh. I mean, uh, I'm talking about eukaryotes. That oh. is. Not bacteria, so we're talking about uh, eukaryote organisms, yeah. So, uh, you know, unicellular plants, unicellular animals, uh, and so on.
0: Okay, so how does the evolution go from, you know, one single type of gamete to two, and then two sexes?
1: (laughs) Well, that's a very interesting question. I think it's a very important one, really, and... um, I think it's likely then that the original eukaryotes would have been unicellular with isogamy. Um, it seems as if anisogamy is linked to the evolution of multicellularity, but not perfectly so. And there are probably good theoretical reasons for this. Actually, won't go into those because they get rather boring. But uh, you would expect anisogamy to evolve as multicellularity evolves. Um, but I think that ancestral gametes are likely to have been small and motile, uh, rather similar to the unicellular organisms that actually produce them. So probably more like sperm, if you like, than ova.
0: So then how do the isogamous, how do they reproduce?
1: Fuse in pairs, the gametes fuse in pairs, just as uh, with an isogamous species. Um Sometimes there are plus and minus mating types, uh, in fact, commonly on, there are two mating types, often called plus and a minus, which uh, selectively fuse together and uh, won't fuse between each other, so you don't get two pluses or two minuses fusing, only plus and minus forms.
0: So why is there a need of more than of multiple mating types, at least two of them?
1: That's a very interesting question some people have tried to answer that. Sometimes um, there are more than two mating types, but usually there are two. I mean, in, in a very few cases, there are many, many mating types. So we um, get uh, fusions between most gametes that meet.
0: All right, so there, let's get into some of the models that have been developed to explain why these different size gametes have evolved in sexually reproductive organisms. Um, one of them is gamete limitation. So can you explain this model?
1: Gamete limitation is a rather tedious term. It simply means inefficient fertilization, so that a lot of gametes just fail to fuse. Um, and calmus, I think it was a long ago, in 1932, Um did a model where uh, he showed quite clearly that you get more fusions, most fusions, if a population um, produces some gametes of the size you need for survival um, and others um, as small as possible. So some of the population produce um, very, very tiny and hence hugely numerous gametes and others um, produce um, some are the gametes of the size needed for survival. That way you get more total surviving zygotes than if you divide everything up uh, equally. Of um, course, that was a population level argument, actually. It wasn't really based on selection on individuals, if you see what I mean.
0: So by zygote, you mean a fertilized egg, the fusion of the sperm and the egg.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You can actually um, get a gamete limitation model to work uh, in terms of individual selection. And uh, you see Leitonen and Hanakoko, I think a few years ago, managed to show this. Um, If you imagine, say, um, that meetings between gametes are very rare. So you imagine that a plus and a minus mating type meet up in just a pair so there's no real competition um between a plus plus uh, mating types and minus mating types because they're, they they largely when they meet up in pairs they may as well collaborate then to get the most possible fusions because there's no competition between uh plus or minus uh, mating types but this uh, in it really does only work proper well if there's almost no competition between the plus mating types and minus mating types for fusions
0: what do you mean by competition
1: <laughs> well it would be the case where um there will be no competition if say you imagine um groups of organisms uh, say 20 organisms so you've got um, say, for want of better argument, 10 plus-making types and 10 minus mating types, then um, you, there would, of course, be competition for fertilizations between the pluses and the minuses. But if you end up with just a pair, one plus and one minus, there's no competition between pluses because there's no other pluses there. Oh, okay? Okay. okay. Right.
0: All right, that makes sense. All right and then uh, another model one that you actually helped develop uh I guess makes more sense in the context of natural selection again at the individual level is called gamete competition so can you explain this model
1: okay. Yeah well, it's a <laughs> long time ago now I was quite young then it was uh, 1972 um with Robin Baker and Vic Smith we we really did some computer simulations we uh had a computer simulation in which we had an ancestral population um, of uh, individuals that really released their gametes by broadcast spawning um, so imagine an aqueous medium broadcast spawning Uh, the gametes were released and they fused randomly Um, all the individuals we assumed uh, had the same reproductive resources so each parent if you like could produce uh, a few large or many small gametes, there could be a range of gamete size depending on how many gametes were produced. And the only other thing that we assumed was that zygote survival or the fitness, if you like, of the zygote increases with its size, which seems likely, I think, really, if you imagine very tiny zygotes would be very viable, and uh, the more provisioning they've got then the more viable, the fitter they become okay, okay. so um, that was really quite exciting because it gave just two solutions isogamy uh, or anisogamy that is one sex or two sexes, it never resulted in 3, four, ten, or 13 sexes which is rather nice and which one you get depends on the uh, nature of the relation between zygote size, which is the sum of the two, you know, the two fusing zygote, uh, gametes, um, and survival of the zygote. So, um, really the critical thing in which you get one sex or two sexes is really that relation between a zygote size and its survivorship.
0: Does the egg become bigger to compensate for the smaller size of the sperm, or does this? Yes, make- yes. Okay. Yes,
1: it, it, it does really. Um, it's a sort of game between the two, um, if you like. Uh, if I think actually, uh, isogamy tends to produce, um, zygotes that are actually slightly smaller, um, than very pronounced anisogamy, um, so, it's rather interesting that when two collaborate, it does tend to result in a, a zygote that's slightly less well provisioned than um, when only one provides, which is an interesting thing.
0: Can a male gamete essentially parasitize the female gamete by taking advantage of the female's larger investment?
1: <laughs> well, in the 1972 paper, we did use that analogy because as an isogamy becomes very extreme, you know, you've got these minuscule sperm and quite big uh, over, I mean, vastly bigger, orders of magnitude bigger than the sperm. I mean, if you consider a, a, the bird's egg, for instance, that's um, hugely different in size. And so you could see, if you like, males um, parasitizing um, females in that sense, yes. Um, Perhaps that wasn't a very uh, nice metaphor. Um, Now, I think it's not an unreasonable metaphor because it it is really the case where one sex is actually providing all the resources for the zygote and the other is only grabbing a genetic contribution to it, if you like.
0: So if this is the case, why hasn't the female evolved a counter-strategy Right. Or maybe they produce uh, eggs that are smaller that kind of force the sperm to become bigger to compensate for that difference.
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's something that really bothered me after the initial model, actually. I mean, our original model really assumed random fusions of gametes. Um, I did a... some subsequent models um, looking at what would happen if we had an ovum producer or a proto female, if you like, that produced ova that would only fuse with other ova. Um, so they refused to fuse with sperm, if you see what I mean. Um, <laughs> um, it was a way of rebelling against this tyranny um, that was being imposed on them to use a very weird metaphor perhaps. But um if anisogamy is weak, so there's little difference in size between the male and female gametes, this such a mutant may well spread actually and return the system to isogamy. Okay? Now if that happens sometime later a new sperm drive is likely to arise in the this new population. So um which would then begin again to replace uh, the, this, uh, newly derived, uh, isogamy. So, you know, you get a new sperm drive arising. And if one of these sperm drives is such that anisogamy becomes very, very pronounced, okay, before a new counteracting mutant ovum arises, it's likely to force any such mutant to fuse with over from the same parent, other mutant over because all the all what happens is all the randomly fusing over uh become fused with all these numerous sperm all these thousands and thousands of sperm Per single over in the system, the ratio of sperm to over is so high that all the randomly fusing over are grabbed quickly by all these sperm in the first few moments of fertilization if there's synchronous spawning, and so all that's left is the uh, selectively fusing over these mutants that refuse to mate with or fuse with uh, sperm, and so of course if there are disadvantages in as it were, selfing, um, then they would have a disadvantage. Um, also, there is another consideration that if you imagine that there's very strong anisogamy already evolved, then, um, Probably the ovum has then evolved to be the optimal size for the um, zygote survival, and so adding another ovum of equal size to it may not increase its fitness all that much. Okay.
0: So you can't have a super zygote.
1: <laughs> <laughs> a super zygote, it may it may be a bit more fit, but it may be you know maybe towards the asymptote of uh, uh, benefits of size. So there probably isn't such a great benefit in being uh, a selectively fusing zygote, uh, ovum. Um, and if it happens very late on, and of course if if the um, ova have become non-motile, it's going to be very difficult to mm. fuse with other ova, isn't it? So that I think there are good reasons why it, it, it is a stable system, really.
0: What about differences in parental care, Of offspring after they're born does the fact that females invest more in the offspring to begin with have something to do with females maybe investing more in keeping their offspring alive after they're born
1: Um, I think one thing we've got to remember is that parental care um, after zygotes are released is, well, at least overall in the animal kingdom is less common than, than no care. I mean, um, care is very common in, of course, birds and mammals and many vertebrates, but, um, many invertebrates inter- and, in fact, many taxa of vertebrates have no care, parental care at all. When parental care is favored, I think which sex actually Cares uh, may actually depend largely on circumstances. I mean, um, I think it was Dawkins and Carlyle long ago pointed out that if you look at fish, um, I think in fish, male and females, uh, male or female care is quite common. I think they're both. I don't know if they're equally common, but they're both common. And of course, if you think about it, both. Sexes are present when the zygotes are actually produced because there's uh, this tends to happen in pair spawning fish. So a male's present and a female's present. And um, so which one, if care is going to be favoured, which one stays and cares um, is almost like perhaps tossing a coin. If you think of mammals, um, it's very, very unusual for males to care in mammals. And, of course, only females are present at the time the offspring is born. So males have usually gone away and aren't around. So, you, you know, it's not surprising that in mammals it's rather unusual to get male care. So I think when parental care does occur, it's a matter of a secondary issue from the general sexual cascade um, logic, if you like. It's it's an aside from that. It rather depends on special ecological conditions favouring care and um, the circumstances under which they, they occur then.
0: Um, so speaking of mammals, I think it would be very easy to... Uh, attempt to assert gender roles in human society using the science of an isogamy. Uh, in fact, the fields of uh, sociobiology and evolutionary psychology attempt to do that. Uh, but can societal differences in women and men be explained by the evolution of different sized gametes?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I think there's great dangers in, in being too facile about that. I mean, and I'll tell you why. I mean, um, for instance, Darwin claimed, um, and it didn't endear him uh, to um, people in the present day and age. I think uh, claimed that men had evolved uh, much higher abilities than women because of sexual selection. Um, you know, he uh, there were two very obvious flaws in in his argument. Firstly, his, his argument was by backed up by comparing the number of men and women versus women achievers at that time. Now, we were talking about Victorian England, I think, and it didn't seem to occur to him that opportunity was a huge um, determinant of whether you achieve things. I mean, you know, women simply didn't get the uh, opportunity to become musicians artists, writers, and so on. And when they did become novelists, they tended to uh, write under men's pen names. So I think that was the most obvious um, flaw. The second flaw, of course, was that he didn't know any genetics. I mean, if you imagine say, a gene for increased intelligence, even if sexual selection in men was favouring that, the most likely place it would arise would be on the autosomes, which both sexes share. And um, you'd need very strong selection against it in women to get it sex-limited to men. Um, I can't see any reason why intelligence would be selected against in women and favoured in men. And, of course, it, if it arose on the X chromosome, well, don't forget that females have two Xs rather than one, so they'd probably end up being more intelligent and less... um <coughs> Well, uh, anyway, you see the argument why... It, it can be very dangerous to make claims without too much knowledge. I think if I, if I was pushed, I would. I probably think one can certainly justify the claim that physical differences between the sexes largely relate to past sexual selection and hence, of course, anisogamy. Behavioral ones are harder. Um, I mean, so much of our behavior relates to culture and learning, um, but it. It would be surprising if there were no behavioural differences between the sexes in sexual behavior I think that at least that stem from our evolutionary past. I don't think'm not sure it extends to much more than sexual behaviour but um, I'd be surprised if there were no differences between the sexes in that aspect, but even so. I personally I'd be very much against any attempt to use this to discriminate between the sexes in terms of, say, legislation or opportunities to pay or, or anything else for that matter. And um, the
0: physical differences between females and males—that's not just something we see in uh, Homo sapiens in humans. That's something we see across the animal kingdom.
1: Yes, that's right. In, in, when I think it's very interesting that when male male competition is strong. Males tend to be bigger than females. Females tend to be bigger than males when male-male competition is weak because bigger females often produce more babies. So being larger is often favoured in females, o- o- up to some optimum, obviously, because bigger females produce more eggs or whatever, or babies. Um, but if there's no male-male competition in males, sometimes you get very, very tiny males. I mean, there's a, a huge difference in certain fish where, I think anglerfish, where the male attaches to the female and it's a tiny little dwarf thing, um, whereas the female's huge relative to the male side. Um, and so there's many orders of magnitude difference in male-female size. There. But if you look at the opposite extreme, I think the biggest difference in size is in, is in species where you've got huge male male competition, like elephant seals, where there's probably a six or five or six fold difference, I don't know, in, or maybe even more. I think there's a fish which has much male male competition. Um, I think it's a cichlid fish where there's um, a very, very high male size compared to female size. But that is where um, the females are constrained to lay their eggs in um, mollusk shells. And so the female size is kept smaller because of the um, need to be able to enter the mollusk shells that are available. But, yeah, I think I think physical differences, particularly size and so on, um, do relate, uh, when males are larger, um, certainly relate to past sexual selection. I don't think there's much doubt about that.
0: Do you think that a lack of opportunity for females continues to be a major challenge for human society today?
1: Yes, I do, actually. It's probably better in Canada and the States, I'm not sure, but in Britain, I still think women have a, a difficult time in science. Um, and that's a great loss to science, really, because... Um, you know, there are many very talented women who don't get the same opportunities that men do. Partly, um, I think it's not always the fault of the institutions. If if it is the fault of uh, selection committees, that would be inexcusable. I think sometimes it's um, a result of the biological fact that women have children and men don't. Um, and I think every opportunity should be uh, explored for enabling women to, um, return to science after they've had children, to not lose because they've had children and so on. It's, um, it's a great problem and I, one I think that needs, still needs addressing. And I was, it's still true in Britain too that women don't achieve equal pay with men and I think that is shameful, quite frankly. Um, You know, I have a wife and daughters, and so I think they should have exactly the same opportunities that um, any sons should have.
0: That was Jeff Parker, evolutionary biologist and former professor of zoology at the University of Liverpool. Up next, we have Roberto Pereira, a research scientist in urban entomology at the University of Florida.
2: Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome
0: back to Science for the People. With me now is Dr. Roberto Pereira, Research Scientist in Urban Entomology at the University of Florida. Roberto, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you. All right. So you are an urban entomologist who studies urban pests such as ants, cockroaches, and bedbugs. So bedbugs are a pretty famous example of sexual conflict at its worst. But before we get into this example, can you explain for our audience what sexual conflict is?
3: Well, sexual conflict is basically a situation where what is good for one of the sexes is not necessarily good for the other sex of the same species. So there is a little conflict there that, uh, you know, in the case of the bed bugs, the males want to reproduce and the females want to reproduce, but they don't want to be hurt, uh, and that's where the conflict comes in.
0: So, how do bed bugs reproduce?
3: Well, they have what they what is called the traumatic insemination, and what that means is that there is really no sexual uh, opening in the female that the the male would use to deposit the sperm. So the sperm from the male is actually injected into the abdomen of the female. So there has to be a puncture that is done by the male into the abdomen of the female in order to deposit. The sperm inside that body.
0: So the female has no natural opening.
3: No, not not for for the sexual uh, uh, in, uh, coupling with the male. So that's uh, that's a strange situation in bed bugs and, and other associated uh, species. Uh, and uh, but it, I guess it works for them. But they have been around for quite some time. So. Uh, I actually, you know, the, the idea or the, the expression traumatic insemination uh, seems to be a lot more harsh than it actually is. Um, and this is a, a system that has evolved into these uh, species. Uh, and there is actually, in the case of the bed bugs, there is a, uh, a organ right at the point where the males will actually uh penetrate the female to to uh absorb that that uh, sperm and and there is in that system also some protection so that the bacteria that may be associated with that penetration do not kill the female
0: Wow, this is really interesting. I didn't know that there wasn't no actual natural or non-traumatic means of reproduction in bed bugs. Has this always been the case, and throughout the evolutionary history of bed bugs, or has do you think that maybe this traumatic insemination it might be more efficient, so it has evolved over time?
3: Well, the fact that it is around now, uh, it probably is an indication that there is some advantage uh for for that species or for that group of species to have evolved this type of insemination uh it's hard for us to see what is exactly that advantage uh through uh, of this process in relation to just having uh, a natural opening that is proper for the the uh the insemination of the female but it's uh it's it, it's something that works and has working f- has been working for Millions of years, uh, so uh, we can't argue with nature, I guess.
0: (laughs) So let's um, talk about where the conflict comes in. So the sexual conflict, what are the different reproductive goals of the male bed bug versus the female bed bug?
3: Well, the goal is probably, the main goal is probably uh, the same, right? They want to reproduce and uh, mean that population is a viable population. Um, the female wants to probably maximize her uh, offsprings just like the males want to maximize their offsprings. The problem is uh, that when you have this traumatic insemination, There is a cost in terms of fitness for the female. And if the female gets to be uh, inseminated too many times, uh, that increases the chances of contamination, infection with bacteria and this kind of thing. And so the, the lifespan of the female is limited if... Uh, she gets too many inseminations and, and, and is the, the problem right there, the conflict. For the male, um, there's no, no harm that is done to the male. So the male, they want to, uh, copulate as many times as possible, uh, because that maximizes their chance of, uh, of having uh, their offspring being produced by a female, especially because the female bed bug has what's called the the less male uh, um, supremacy, or uh, meaning that the less male to inseminate that female is the one that will uh, end up with the uh, sperm uh, fertilizing the eggs, and that is the one that's going to be the father of that progeny, at least in that one cycle.
0: Okay. So all the males are trying to be the last male to inseminate a female before she is fertilized and gives
3: birth. Yeah. So, so you see that the female may want to limit it, uh, how many times that she gets, uh, inseminated, uh, because that means being stabbed in yeah. the habit and, uh, and, and that in- de- increases her chance of, of not surviving as long. Uh, and the males on their, on their side, they're trying to make sure that that they are the last one to to inseminate. So the female actually has some postures that can limit limit the the males uh, in their approach to her. Um, so that's a behavior that was probably developed just to limit the number of inseminations that are uh, they are uh, occurring with uh, in, within that group.
0: Well, what about the contamination you spoke about? Where does that come from? Are the male's reproductive or- organs not clean?
3: Well, it's, it's yeah, just from the environment uh, and the fact that, uh, you know, they are in an environment that is is not extremely clean. Uh, if you've seen a, an infestation of bed bugs in an apartment, you will see that there is a lot of uh, the feces, uh, the, the blood that's passed out as feces uh, afterwards because they are feeding on, on human blood or, or, or other animal blood. And um, and there's cast skins and other th- the, detritus uh, in that uh, environment. Therefore, there will be a lot of bacteria. Um, bag bugs have been shown to be carrying uh, different bacteria on their body. Uh, so it's just environmental contamination that will come into the body of the female because that cuticle that would protect the, the internal organs is broken mm-hmm. when there is insemination uh, with the males.
0: So there are two risks to the females with traumatic insemination. The first is injury, obviously, and then having to heal the injury afterwards. And that obviously takes a toll on the bed bug's health, the female's health. And then there's also the risk of infection from contamination,
3: yeah and uh you know the 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 cost of healing that that wound is probably not that much if it's once or twice and and not too often uh, it because that's what's normal for the bed bug but if it gets to be too much then it's it, it gets to be a little bit more costly um because it will take uh reserves that uh, the the female could have been using for some other uh, factors or uh, other uh, um, operation that is needed there. So uh, including reproduction, including producing number of eggs and uh, high number of eggs and other things. So.
0: What is the lifespan of a bed bug? Uh,
3: <laughs> it, it's a, it's a, this is a question that uh, is interesting because the bed bug, uh, it takes about a month for a bed bug to go from egg to adult. Uh, And then the adult can live for several months, maybe even years, if they are quiet in a corner and they are not feeding too much, they can actually survive for months. And actually, people have seen uh, and and mentioned years without feeding in a corner where they are quiet and they are not uh, uh, spending their energy or, or anything and they're not desiccating and so on and so forth. So that's, that's the extreme cases. Uh, uh but normally, you know, the, the female will go through, uh, a few, uh, egg cycles, uh, and eventually will die. Uh, so it will be a few months, uh, rather than years, uh, and, uh, uh but it can be extended in, in some extreme cases, both for the males and the females, and actually nymphs. That if you just leave them in a the corner um, and uh, they're not being disturbed, but they don't also don't have any extra food, they can be in a quiescent stage for a very long time.
0: The nymphs are the juvenile stage of the bed bugs, right? Exactly. Okay. Uh, how often do female bed bugs reproduce within their lifetime?
3: Uh, it all depends on the, the, the availability, uh, of males and things. But every, every, uh, you know, every two weeks or so, she is basically ready for another, uh, batch mm-hmm. of eggs. Uh, so it, it, it all depends on the availability. Uh, I actually don't have any numbers, uh, remember any numbers of, of average number of, of, copulations in and, and egg cycles. But uh usually you can think about maybe six, seven, eight uh and uh and then the bed bug will be because the bed bug can produce usually up to two hundred eggs a uh, female bed bug will produce. Uh and usually a batch of eggs will be uh 11, 12, maybe a little bit more. So in order to to spend all those 200 that she uh, theoretically has available, it will be a few cycles, maybe eight, nine, ten cycles.
0: So a female might have to go through this traumatic insemination process six, seven, maybe eight times in their adulthood.
3: Yes. And sometimes, you know, for each cycle, she may be actually going through more than one insemination Mm -hmm. if she's not able to protect herself from, from the males attacking her. So...
0: Okay, so how do females defend themselves from, from the males if they don't want to mate with them?
3: Well, there are some uh, some just behavioral things that, that may occur. One of the things that they do is that they have a certain posture uh, that they curve their body, and basically that prevents the male from reaching that point uh, where they penetrate her body. Uh, that point in her body actually has a little... Little curvature in the cuticle, and so there is a, a, an exact point where uh, uh, the where the male is actually penetrating the abdomen of the female. So by just curving her body, she can prevent the males from from uh, actually uh, copulating with her. But uh, the other thing that happens is uh, she, she can actually move away, and that's mm-hmm. what we uh, did in the, in the experiment that um, that. You were looking at initially, uh, and what they do is that females will tend to move away from concentrations of males. So bed bugs live in an uh, in ambient, and they usually have these clusters of bed bugs, uh, and these clusters include uh, a bunch of nymphs, maybe a few uh, uh, eggs there in the environment too, and males and females normally. But uh, what we observed in this experiment that was done by one of our grad students uh, a number of years ago, uh, Marjorie Marjorie, uh, Pfister, uh, was that the females will have a tendency to move away from concentrations, from aggregations, where there were too many males, and they they would have a tendency to form aggregations that had a majority of females. And this is a way that they they protect themselves from being attacked uh, by the males they're looking to copulate.
0: If they're in a cluster of females, do the females protect and defend each other, or is it just a numbers game where if you are one among many females, you're less likely to be um to be followed or inseminated by a male,
3: yeah, I think it it is just a numbers game that uh, if you are in a in a group that has more males than females, uh, the chances of a female being uh, you know attacked by more than one male is greater. If you're in a concentration in a aggregation, where you have a few males for many females, the chances of any female being attacked more than once is, is decreased. So that's uh, that's just a, a, a numbers game that's displayed there. Uh, so what we observed was that females would have a tendency to leave aggregations that have a high number of males and go to aggregations that have a lower number of males.
0: Are these clusters, are, is the purpose of the cluster just to have the opportunity to mate with another bed bug if, need, if needed? Is that the reason why they have these clusters that are close together?
3: Uh, not really. Uh, there, is a, uh, there is a certain protection in terms of these clusters have uh, uh, a higher uh, moisture level in the air, so they, they form a microenvironment that they, it's a little bit more protective. For these uh, for these bed bugs, uh, it's uh, there's possibly some aspects of uh, of uh, you know prevention of attack by natural enemies. Although I don't think people have really looked into that, um, we don't really know about too many insects that are you know um, predators or or, or or parasites of of these bed bugs. Uh, so it's more that they like to be in in, in these uh, aggregations, uh, we think because of the, the controlling the moisture around themselves.
0: And is there also a purpose, um, say, to raise the nymphs, the yawnin within these clusters and protect them as well?
3: Uh, yeah, to a certain extent, uh, protecting from other natural enemies uh, that would is, is a, a way that, that this would also work. Uh, although um, the nymphs can move to from one from one uh, cluster to a, another, and we don't really see that, and although people don't, I haven't really looked at at, at parental care, so the nymphs are not really attached to their uh, their um, parents in any way, uh, they are usually attached to where there's a cluster of eggs. That's where they will start uh a concentration once they they uh, eclode from that uh, from those eggs and then but bed bugs are not staying the same uh groups all the time they are moving from one group to another uh, and and as nymphs that, that's probably the case too, although I don't know that anybody has really done a, the, the experiment of marking nymphs and knowing exactly where they end up uh, that has been done with adults and they see that that they don't stay in the same cluster they don't stay with the same group they kind of move around and uh, and, and reagroup themselves
0: so are the defensive and evasive behaviors that females demonstrate are they actually helpful in keeping the female bed bugs alive
3: yes and and uh, I, I really don't have numbers that I recall at this point in time but uh, but there has been been experiments done that showed that n- females that had higher number of copulations they had shorter lifespans. So that's so it is uh, established that by protecting themselves from mating too many times, the females can live long, longer, and therefore reproduce for a long period of time.
0: But say you have a female bed bug and a male bed bug, and they want to reproduce with each other at the same time. How would that work?
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's it's a simple process. Uh, the female, uh, the the males are always very uh, industrious in, in trying to find ways to to get to the females. But if the female is receptive, the the male basically curves its body uh, its body uh onto the body of the female so they the male can reach the underside of the the female with uh, uh his uh, uh male organ and penetrate in that certain area in the abdomen and uh so it's not nothing elaborate uh and it all depends on the female being more receptive and if she is uh is is a fairly simple uh process there and the female gets inseminated. The, they separate. The female will go one way. The female, will, the male will go another way, and uh, and that's it. Um, and they don't maintain that pair uh, for a long period.
0: Do the females ever have to seek out the males, uh, or is it? I, is it? Are they the males are just around all the time?
3: Uh, yeah, the I I don't think they have to because the males do a lot of the seeking and uh, they are insistent. Uh, so, uh, what we observe is that the females have a tendency to try to avoid, uh, too many ma- matings and not look necessarily look for a mating because that comes to them.
0: Are the female bedbugs, are they also, are they choosy or do they have like a preference for the type of male they mate with?
3: I haven't seen any, any, any information on that, any studies that would indicate, uh, choice of the female, uh, O- of course, the female has an opportunity to uh, try to minimize uh, w- or to try to uh, uh, prevent a, a certain male from mating with her. Um, and but uh, we don't know for sure uh, if there is there if the females are looking for any anything in particular in terms of size or uh, or something else. Uh, I haven't seen any studies on that.
0: Yet. Okay, I was trying to get at courtship and I want to ask if there is any courtship involved in bedbug mating. You know, you have the colorful, um, the colors in tropical fishes, uh, courtship dancing in birds. Uh, is there anything like that at uh, all in bedbugs?
3: Uh, no, not much of a courtship. Uh, uh, there doesn't seem to be any, any particular behavior. Uh, that is associated before the thing. It almost looks like an attack. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, and the, the female, uh, may be receptive, uh, especially if the female is, is, is blood fed. So she's much bigger and she's not able to curve her body and this kind of thing. Then, uh, then the, the, the mating will occur more more easily. Uh, but the female is a little bit more agile and, uh, and she decided by some reason that that is not, the best time for the mating or not the best male for the mating, mm-hmm. uh, she can try to do the curvature of the body or, or run away and this kind of thing to avoid that mating.
0: So these competing reproductive strategies, um, you know, we have the male whose um, reproductive organ has evolved to become more and more intense. Um, and then the female has evolved um, behaviors or maybe her own internal structures um, in response to the male's. Um, but these strategies don't they come at a cost to the male and the female
3: yeah especially for the the female there is a cost in in in, in just having too many reproductions and that's where she tries to limit that uh, for the male I guess if there is more effort into uh, finding uh, the the mates and more effort in actually accomplish the the copulation, uh, that that's energy that's spent that may limit uh, the lifespan of the bed bug at some point in time
0: right so in the females case her strategy is aligned with her survival but for the males um, that's not that's not the case so how costly is it for a male bed bug to develop and evolve this appendage um, that they use for traumatic insemination
3: well it's um, yeah that part, I really don't know that I understand exactly why this thing evolved because it seems to me, uh, there is a perfect system that has been working for many other insects and many other, uh, s- s- spaces all over the world that it having the, the male, uh, organ penetrating the female, uh, in, in her reproductive system. And therefore, uh, to me, it's really not clear that this is necessarily a very uh advantageous system uh, that exists so uh i really couldn't re- uh, uh, reply couldn't answer to the question why would this uh, develop uh i guess once you have a, a system where uh there is penetration of the the female body uh that causes a wound as in the case of the bed bugs There is uh, some advantage in in growing uh, some organs to uh, absorb that that sperm that is injected and some organ that prevents uh, higher infection rates uh, from getting established in that female. Uh, Why exactly they had to develop this traumatic insemination system is not very clear to me.
0: Could there be a reason why reproduction is prioritized um at least over survival or maybe development uh, for the male bed bugs?
3: Yeah, that's possible, but I don't see that uh the traumatic insemination really is that much better uh in in preserving the life of the male in relation to a normal uh or a fit male organ female organ copulation that would occur um it's it's really not very clear to me that 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 there is that much an av- advantage for the male uh in that way except that you know uh it may be that uh the the less male uh supremacy or uh is easier established that way uh than with the copulation through uh the natural organs that would occur. So, uh, so I'm not really sure, uh, what is the advantage for, for the male or for the female to develop this system. Um, and, uh, and it's a system that you don't really see in, in too many, uh, insects. Uh, so it's a little, uh, a little strange, that this actually even develop at some point in time, Uh, it's not clear to me. I guess we would probably have to to understand a little bit better the lifestyle and uh, the situations that these uh, primitive species would have uh, that would make such a system uh, more advantageous in that situation.
0: I think it would be helpful for our audience if they understood what the male reproductive organ looks like and how exactly it can puncture the the body of the female. Do you have an idea? Could you describe uh, very briefly what that organ looks like?
3: Yeah, it's it's basically a, a curved um, arrowhead, so to speak. So it's a hard, uh, um, you know, cuticle uh, curved point. Uh, so it's very much like it would be a knife for or or something like this uh, uh and it's just, uh and and actually the, the the part of the female that's receiving uh that organ uh has a little indentation in the cuticle in bet- uh, between two segments of the, the the bed bug which guides that that organ to a point to penetrate the body of the female Which and under that cuticle, there is the spermilage that receives the the sperm, which is an organ that the female has there. So it's really just like a um, a blade, a curved blade uh, or a curved cone that gets inserted into the female.
0: So has this this organ has it evolved to become more intense, monstrous looking over time, or is this not the case for bed bugs? Is there like the evolutionary arms race, so to speak?
3: Yeah, I I, I can't talk about the evolution of, of this organ. Uh, I just don't have the information on that uh, on how it was and how it is now in the in the the bad bug um, species. Um, but um, it, it actually, in terms of the organ itself, it has to be much less elaborate. Uh, because uh, all this is like curved uh, cone, co- curved long cone that penetrates the organ. Uh, it penetrates the cuticle. So uh, I, I guess in a way there is an advantage because it, it, it eliminates uh, you know having to have a perfect uh, coupling of female and male organ. That uh, and and perhaps it's easier. Uh, for the male to find a mate without having to have a very uh, elaborate coupling that has to occur,
0: do you think maybe this reproductive system has something to do with how persistent they are? Uh,
3: I I actually don't know that it is this this type of uh, the, uh, insemination that that is allowing them to to, to thrive. Um, I think there are many other factors that that make them. Uh, a good urban past, uh, because they are, you know, they're able to, to hide during the day, attack the host during the night. Um, the hosts, their bite, uh, on humans are not necessarily things that people, uh, feel right away. Uh, so the humans are basically, uh, in a state of, of not being able to, to combat that attack. Uh, so I think the bad bugs have a very good system <laughs> on their life uh, and then the way that they, they have uh, evolved and the fact that they were able to, to, you know, bad bug uh, infestations were very common up to the 1940s or so. Uh, and then with use of DDT and not many other products that those infestations declined quite a bit. Um, but, but, at the time that that we stopped using DDT, bad bug, inf- uh, bug populations were already uh, resistant to those types of uh, products. Uh, and now we have uh, the populations now are resistant to the pyrethroids that we have been using to control them. So the bed bugs have uh, been able to adapt to different situations uh, through the years and have adapted to to the the homes that we live in uh, they have adapted to having air conditioning in in these homes and not and not being in cages in caves that uh don't have control temperature so they have many other ne- mechanisms that allow them to adapt and to be uh efficient pests uh, and, and continue to reproduce and form elections. So I'm not sure that the, the, the insemination system uh, is necessarily uh, what is making them a pest or, or if it would make them less of a pest if they had a different uh, reproduction system
0: think the key here is that they're very good at adapting so from what i understand a, a traumatic insemination maybe it's not necessarily so much sexual conflict it's just how how things are this is just how male and female bed bugs reproduce and it's been working for them
3: yeah and you know and and I, I even question when we say traumatic insemination because that's a very uh, homocentric uh, evaluation of what is going on there. Uh, and and with reproduction of uh, with other insects uh, that don't have what is called the traumatic insemination, you also see females trying to limit the number of copulations that they have just because they know that that may not be very it's not that they know but uh, it's it established that having too many inseminations may not be the most effective uh use of their time is may not be uh, the best thing for their body to to Recuperate from and so on and so forth. So, uh, I, the fact that bed bugs have this so-called traumatic insemination is not much different from the, the insemination of many other insects, many species all over, uh, the world. Uh, and it, for me, it's kind of a curiosity. Uh, it's an interesting, uh, thing to talk about. Uh, but it does not seem to be really causing, uh, a tremendous loss of, of, uh, uh, of reproductive potential or anything like this in normal situations. Uh, in, but it, it, it is possible that in, in certain situations, this type of system may be detrimental. Uh, but in, in what we see in infestations, uh, all over the world of bed bugs, uh, it does not seem to limit that infestation at all.
0: All right, Roberto. Thank you so much. If you want to learn more about Jeff Parker or Roberto Pereira, you can check out their links on our website at www.scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Science for the People.
2: Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skepchik Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skepchik at skepchik.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders.